Hello and welcome to The Paper Lantern, a career-focused podcast for students and young professionals. I'm your host, Derek Wong, and my goal is to help light up your career path by sharing stories, advice, and perspectives from relatable role models. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring achiever, creator, or professional who's excited to share their advice to help you discover your passion or get unstuck. If each episode represents one paper lantern, my dream is to fill the sky with paper lanterns for the whole world to see. Thanks for listening to the Paper Lantern Podcast, and I hope that you enjoy each episode. Hey listeners, I'm excited to introduce my guest for this episode, Philip Mann. Philip is the co-founder and CEO of Port, a travel tech company for the remote era. His company connects customers with remote guides all around the world so they can attend offline events, trade shows, at work locations and venues all around the world through live video calls. I met Philip in early 2020 as part of the Antler startup program out here in Singapore. As context, Antler is a venture capital fund that puts together an intensive startup generator program where entrepreneurs like myself have about two months to meet a co-founder, come up with a viable business idea, and then pitch it to their investment committee. Philip and I were part of the same cohort, and we shared this incredible experience of trying to build a startup for the first time during the early days of the pandemic. It's been absolutely incredible to watch the grit and grind progress of Philip's company as he now relocated to Seoul, South Korea to continue building his startup. Philip is a self-starter. He's super creative, ambitious, and quite a unique and hilarious guy. He's a Chinese guy who grew up in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and he spent his early career as a product manager for Starbucks Digital Ventures in China before he transitioned to become a corporate innovation coach for a consulting firm, where he essentially helped big companies test out and roll out new products. And through these experiences, it's brought him to live in Shanghai, Ho Chi Minh City, Jakarta, and so many more places. He's the definition of a global citizen and has a really unique perspective on life. He's also a semi-professional filmmaker and even started his own creative studio where he directed and produced short films. Philip is an all-around great dude. Whether it's chilling over beers, we're talking about modern romance and relationships, living in Europe and Asia, or the startup stuff. In this episode, we talk more about his experiences growing up in Amsterdam, his unique career journey that brought him from product to innovation coach, and even shares the untold stories of being a startup founder. It was an absolute joy catching up with Philip, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. My name is Derek, and I'm here with one of my great friends, Philip Mann. We go way back, but I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself, Philip. How are you doing? Are you, Derek? Good to see you. I'm uh, born and raised in the Netherlands, uh, in a small town uh, above Amsterdam. My family's from Hong Kong. I'm currently in uh, South Korea, but I moved to Asia in kind of late 2012. Uh, I moved first to Shanghai, and then in the past kind of two years, I've been all kind of like all around in in uh, in Asia. And right now, yeah, I'm in Seoul. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to unpack there. You know, your journeys in Europe to Asia, but give give the audience a sense of you know what are you doing right now. It's quite a, a atypical journey. What are you working on these days? I am. 95% working on my startup here in Seoul. Uh, I'm an, uh, working on a what we call a remote travel startup. So we, we started a year ago, kind of during the height of the pandemic. Uh, I used to fly around a lot as kind of like a corporate innovation consultant, and that wasn't going to happen anymore last year. So uh, yeah, we came up with a solution where we basically connect people who need to be at places 
with the guides that are already there. And uh, the idea is that the guides would bring them on site through a video call. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the basics of it. And uh, I started this in Singapore last year. And uh, we got an opportunity to come to uh, join an accelerator here in Seoul. And uh, that's why I'm here right now. Yeah. And we're going to dive deeper into both your own startup journey, you know, your role doing corporate innovation and traveling all across Asia. But before we dive deeper, let's do what we call lightning round with some more fun questions so we can get to know you a little bit. Uh, What's the last book that you read? Uh, It's uh, the book of Bill Gates. What is it? Uh, Climate, how to prevent, uh, how to avoid climate disaster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the last book I read. Nice. And what do you think? Are you ready to pivot your startup to, you know, how to, to avoid a climate change disaster? Or I think the main thing, the main takeaway is that uh, it's much worse than we all think it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, one, uh, maybe one small statistic to share with people is that in uh, 2020, when basically the world was kind of, you know, paused, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions were reduced with 6%. So, you know, they need to be reduced by basically 100, like net, net zero. And uh, I realized that, you know, even if the world kind of stops, it was only reduced by 6%. Mm-hmm. We have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I read that or I listened to that one via audiobook and the whole premise is how do we get to carbon zero by 2050? But I'm glad we both read right. that one. Yeah. Right. Another right. one is uh, what's a physical product that you can't live without? And what's a digital product that you just can't live without? Uh, well, physical one, I guess, you know, it always answers my phone, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess I carry my earphones with me all the time, mm-hmm. drown out the noise. I need some alone time. I like it to be quiet. Uh, digital product. Uh, besides maybe the common ones, there's actually two apps that I use a lot. Mm. Uh, one is called Currency, uh, where you can easily, you can input all the different kinds of currency and you input a certain number and it transfer, uh, I'd say, it transfer, uh, it exchanges to all the other type of currencies. And the other mm-hmm. one is called World Clock, which is mm-hmm. a similar thing. Uh, I have like all kinds of cities uh, in there and I input a certain time in a certain city and uh, again, uh, tells me what the time is in all the other ones. Uh, the reason why I need that is because I work uh, with a lot of people around the world all the time. And uh, I just quickly need to know, you know, how much money does it cost what they were talking about and what time is it going to be there at whatever meeting we're going to have. Very cool. Yeah, given your global point of view and even your previous role traveling all around the world and across Asia, it's good to know yeah, what time is it where and how much does something cost? You know, what's the Big Mac price, as they say? Right. Exactly. And having been to so many places around the world, can you share a story about an epic meal time? Something that you a very memorable dining occasion. Uh, I'm actually a pretty simple eater, so something I guess I could uh, remember that was really nice was kind of like a whole lobster sashimi I had somewhere in the north of China. Mm. That was actually uh, surprisingly nice. Yeah. I mean, I like lobster, but always cooked. And then they served it. Uh, you can select your own lobster and they served it, you know, a whole kind of like uh, in a sashimi way. Uh, that was really nice meal. Wow. Was that like a more elegant sort of uh, dining setup or was it a more casual? It was, I mean, in North China, uh, mm-hmm. along the coast, you have a lot of, uh, you know, seafood restaurant. Mm-hmm. This is one of those uh, seafood restaurants right there. What's a random skill that you have or a fun fact about yourself if you can't think of a, a random skill? A random skill, not sure. Um, maybe a fun fact I did two years ago, I was traveling with my friends uh, and we drove an auto rickshaw 
from South India, 3,000 kilometers all the way up to North India. Whoa. Uh, that was pretty, that was pretty crazy. Wow. That's a fun fact. Yeah. So yeah. was it a, a very rickety rickshaw or was it pretty reliable? Well, no, I mean, a rickshaw, uh, I mean, I think broke down literally every day. Mm-hmm. But then again, there's a mechanic every two kilometers <laughs> in India too. So, and yeah. they all have like welding and all that. And, uh, but yeah, it does break down every day. Yeah, that's well, part of the adventure. Yeah, I guess that's a metaphor for our lives, right? We you know break down a little bit. There's people that pick you <laughs> right. up along the way. So well said, exactly. well said. Great. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about your life story. I think you have a really unique background and a really cool life journey. Do you want to walk us through kind of where you grew up and describe that town for us in, in the Netherlands? I mean, I grew up in a quite a, uh, I guess, a typical uh, small town in the Netherlands. Uh, it's called Oren. Uh, which, uh, you know, it's like well, in, in the 16th century or whatever, Horn, uh, the Ho- Holland was actually, or the Netherlands was actually a very rich country. And that was one of those kind of like harbor cities. Um, so I grew up there, small town, uh, I guess, in a sense, a very typical European, uh, I guess, immig- like an immigrant European childhood, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, again, small town, but my parents always worked in Amsterdam. So I always had a bit of that, you know, bigger city, although Amsterdam is not that big, uh, bigger city uh, vibe around me because, you know, used to be, uh, go there all the time, been in Amsterdam a lot. Uh, that's also where I then eventually moved to, uh, to do my college. Yeah. And then growing up, I, for myself, growing up in California as an Asian American, there's tons of other Asian folks. What was it like for yourself, you know, growing up in the Netherlands, which is a big, uh, a smaller country, but Amsterdam is a pretty global city. Uh, in many ways. What was your experience You would say like? so. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is this, to be honest, I think Holland and a lot of European places praise themselves to be multicultural, but there's still always a bit of the cultures hanging out with themselves, kind of like communities hanging out with w- within their own type of thing. However, I would say in kind of like the Asian community, there are two types, let's say. Uh, you have the ones that are very well integrated and they have, they you know, they, they have basically just Dutch friends Dutch white friends mostly mm-hmm. I guess uh, and then you have the other ones that again just hang out in their own community I was more of the very integrated like you know they call it like a banana very mm-hmm. wide on the inside yeah sure I probably definitely like that most of my friends were just Dutch yeah friends um, and I know very briefly before the world shut down in many ways you know I remember doing a barbecue at my place and I think a few of your friends came through too some of your Dutch friends and it was right. super funny because earlier we're doing, I guess, you know, more quintessentially Asian things or talking right. about, you know, Asian food. And then you, know, you guys just broke into rapid fire Dutch. And it was just super interesting because I've only heard Dutch spoken a number of times. You know, when I right. went to you know Amsterdam or you know heard people at the ship airport. But right. it is a very interesting language. And I imagine you're very multilingual. And do you often get surprised looks when you just break into fluent Dutch? I, I, I try not to. So when I go to places and I hear people speak Dutch, I try to like, like not like not let them know necessarily at the beginning that I speak Dutch hmm. and see what they say. Uh, yeah, obviously no one expects me to, to be able to speak Dutch. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, people think it's very close to like either German or English, but it's actually much closer to like Scandinavian languages, hmm. like Swedish. Uh, Norwegian like a lot of times I would if I hear a Swedish person talk the first 10 seconds I would think like let's say they do that in Amsterdam the first 10 seconds I would think they're speaking Dutch and then I would like listen closely and then I realize that I can't understand anything they're saying (laughs) it sounds exactly like Dutch 
Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very weird. Wow. So cool. So cool. And for yourself, you do, I know you mentioned you went to Amsterdam for, for college, right? And you know, did your university there. What was yeah. your, what was that decision process of, hey, I want to stay in Europe or I want to stay in, in Holland? How did you figure out what you wanted to do and how did that piece start? And it's kind of cool too, like through these podcasts, I get to ask these questions that we've actually never talked too much about. We, we know, so right, 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 yeah. We got to go deep, as they say. Right, exactly. It, it was kind of, um, how to say, you know, a standard path. It's almost expected, you know, you graduate in the small town, well, the next thing is you go to college and, you know, very likely you're going to do that in Amsterdam. Uh, definitely kind of like a, I followed a bit of a standard path there. Um, and then, you know, you would also just move out and you move to Amsterdam and you, you get the whole student life. Uh, so I did my bachelor's there and uh, also did my master's there as well. Uh, that was also, in a way, just following a path. Uh, hmm. To me, going for like abroad college isn't wasn't really a thing. I don't think in Holland that's really a thing, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, much less than I don't know. For example, here in Korea, graduated when I was like 23, 24 with, with my master's. Yeah, this was back in two thousand and twelve. And what did you study? Did you know it was going to be business or was it more of a hybrid background? No, it was like there was like this vague hybrid thing, and it was like kind of like. Uh, you know, it bites me back later when I was trying to find a job. Like, I couldn't really sell it. But basically what it was is, you know, you come out of college. That's why you come out of high school. I was 18 years old. You don't really know what to do. You don't want to really make a choice what, on what to do, at least, you know, for me. I guess in a, in a sense, I'm a very curious person. So, you know, you don't want to really make choices because you're like, oh, but what about all the other stuff? Right. Um, so there was this thing they call interdisciplinary studies at the uh, University of Amsterdam. That's where I went to. And they had this program called a bachelor's degree called Beta Gamma. It was a mix of beta courses like physics and math and chemistry, okay. and also gamma courses, social sciences, psychology. And uh, you will get a lot of these courses in the first year. And then by the end of the first year, you're supposed to like kind of like uh, pick your major, like, okay, what are you actually going to do? So, you know, you get like an extra year to explore. And, uh, and then you have to do kind of like an accelerated program. So let's say I would chose math, then you would do basically a math bachelor uh, in two years instead of three. And then you would uh, yeah, graduate with a bachelor of science in beta gamma with a major in math. Uh, but the thing is, by the end of that year, I was like kind of in a identity crisis, I guess. Uh, first of all, I was always coming from a science background. Even mm. in high school, I took like super heavy science programs. Um, and uh, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Like, sure. I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to solve another equation anymore. And most people out of that program after that first year, they would choose uh, physics or math or something like that. And I went all the other way. I was like, I'm going to study media. And I was thinking, I was thinking, uh, I think I was the only person in like five years of that, uh, of that whole beta gamma program uh, that then chose a major in media. And it was literally called media and culture. Mm, you're a very cultured um, man now. Yes. Um, so uh, I did that. And to be honest, like the first year I completely failed. Like, you know, the thing is it was um, at the, faculty of humanities okay so i was always faculty of science and things like that and then suddenly you go to faculty of 
humanities and it's, it's an it's an alpha study right like like languages and philosophy it's a completely different thing hmm. and completely different way of how you're being evaluated what is expected from you what's good what's bad and uh i failed you know hmm. like imagining always coming from solving equations and whatever you need to do uh in in kind of like the the hard sciences to oh now you're just going to read papers and write essays and write papers and that was a completely different thing. Uh, so I had to make a bit of an adjustment. So yeah, that first year uh, was a bit painful, but uh, I learned that other, yeah, kind of like the other direction and uh, you know, it went well and I liked it actually. Mm-hmm. I don't regret uh, at all that I chose a completely different uh, direction in, mm-hmm. in, into the media. Yeah. And then jumping forward to, as you were looking, you know, let's say even after your master's, how did you go from this media background to you know, what you inevitably ended up doing with your career, you know, traveling and focusing on you know, this venture building for companies? How did that evolution happen? I always was a guy who was like tweaking and building little websites when I was a teenager. So that's a bit of a background there. And so my first job was also kind of, uh, a, a, kind of like a product owner role at an online marketing company. And that's always... Uh, something I wanted to do. So I was always tweaking websites, trying to build things, trying to get something started. And uh, in my college time, I was also trying to do a startup. So that has always been kind of my, um, you know, part of what I was interested in. So uh, all the roles that I had, and to be honest, I only had two actual jobs mm-hmm. um, and both of them uh, were that type of roles. So where uh, I was, you know, I was kind of like a product manager or product owner of a specific piece or platform or part of a business. And I was responsible to build that out. Um, I did that at that online marketing company. This was in Shanghai. I did that uh, at Starbucks China, also in Shanghai. So then after that, um, I got hired by a corporate innovation company. And that was exactly what they needed me to do. You know, they needed me to join larger, uh, usually FMCG companies and help them build, uh, build products, basically mm-hmm. build out a new business. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go deeper there. Like, how did you, one, how did you find that experience uh, from a, what were the things you loved? What were the things that were more challenging and, you know, how was that overall lifestyle? Cause it seems cool, you know, to be able to travel and do all these amazing things, but you know, what were some of the, the lesser known things? Well? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, let's separate that a little bit, mm-hmm. like the, the actual job and the lifestyle that came with it. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I can talk about those separately, but the job was actually really good. So I was a product manager at Starbucks China. So, you know, you're part of this big corporate machine that has all its perks, but it's also, you know, a lot of the, your time is not necessarily spent on, building value for your customers, to be honest. You know, mm. you worked at large companies too. A lot of that work is, you know, following corporate guidelines, you know, dealing with legal or whatever it is, even for stuff that is not even out there yet. And um, so when we when we switch and, um, and I, I joined these kind of like corporate innovation programs, basically the mandate was, you know, you have 10 to 12 weeks to find a proposition and to build out that, um, whether it's an MVP or whatever it is, you need to like validate that this product or proposition will work in the market. And, um, you know, credit really to that company and also the companies that we work with, um, they were very, like, it takes a lot of change for these mm-hmm. big companies to say, you know what, we're going to throw out how we normally do research and we're just going to roll with this, 
you know, corporate innovation, this startup program type of uh, innovation in this big company, but they did that really well. So we got a lot of autonomy. We were put in a small team, some people from our company, the innovation company, some people from the client company, the big company, and we're literally just put in a small team, let's say four to five people as a small startup team. And you get 12 weeks to work on a certain you know, task or mandate. And, and usually that is building out a new product in a, in a certain category. It was great. Like, to be honest, I learned in that job much more about product management and marketing than I did at Starbucks. What the most things that I learned at Starbucks was how to work in a large company, which is right. also very valuable because now I'm working in a startup and I need to sell into big companies and I know exactly how their decision making is going uh, and how that works. But in terms of the, you know, the core thing of get close to your customer, really understand what they need and test things out. Honestly, that's so tough in these mm-hmm. larger companies. Um, and uh, when I joined these corporate innovation project, yeah, we got a lot of space to do that. You know, every day, you know, we got out there and we got insights and we talked to people literally. And our goal was to do that every day. You know, have we talked to people today? Have we learned? Have we got new insights today? Um, what have we validated today? You know, so we, we were able to move in a super fast pace. So learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot on, on that part. And then the other thing is, uh, we were usually working with kind of FMC, FMCG type of companies. Well, just know, what is FMCG for folks that might not know? Yeah, FMCG is fast moving consumer goods. I think in the U- US, they usually call it like CPG, uh, which is, uh, what's CPG? Consumer, consumer package, package goods. goods. Yep, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically every, all the stuff that you see in the supermarkets from food to non-food. Uh, and, you know, each category, whether that's shampoo, toothpaste or whatever, they have like a hundred brands all that stuff. Uh, and, it, and, and, you know, they try to churn out new products all the time. Um, but the, the, a lot of what I really understood there is how to really do like proper marketing. Mm-hmm. And marketing isn't coming up with a clever advertising video or clever advertising, whatever. But it's really about how to position, you know, like how to understand your customer and how to position you, your, your, your product in a certain way. Um, so I learned a lot about how these companies do it. And why these companies are so great at it, I think, is because, you know, they work with physical products, you know. Mm-hmm. My background is always in software. So if we need you to make a change, we'll make the change like today. Mm-hmm. And the change is done in done. a few days and we, right. and we ship it and it's there. But you want to change the shampoo, that will take you a year, two mm-hmm. years, you know. Yeah. You need all to the approvals, the, line, the testing, the fragrance, the testing, the, the formula, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. Um, so for them what I realized innovation is much more in the marketing, you know, like how can we come up with a different proposition and different messaging that can hook into people this season. And, you know, like the formula is probably roughly the same, right? The bottle is probably roughly the same, but right. You know, but they were able to kind of like find the innovation in, in the marketing part. And that made it really interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a lot on, on kind of like, you know, what tools they use, how they think about that. Um, yeah. So again, I, I learned a lot and touch a bit, a little bit on that lifestyle part. Yeah. But hold on. Uh, uh, what was your title? Like, what is your job called? And what would you call this industry? Uh, the industry is probably corporate innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there, are, there are a lot nowadays, especially because these large companies now 
are looking for different ways to do innovation, right? They see maybe other companies being able to churn out products much faster or better. They don't want to work. They don't want to wait one or two years before a product actually get tested by the market, right? That's the key thing. Um, so yeah, probably corporate innovation. And then my title, um, they had a few kind of roles. They have mm. either a uh, lead coach. Mm-hmm. So the coach would be someone who knows the entire process, knows exactly what they need to do in those 12 weeks. Uh, they would have a growth hacker. Mm. Uh, he's in the company I was working with. So they would grow, growth hacker. That's the person that would um, design and set up a lot of the experiments so that we can test and get the data and get you know the validation data. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess generally they would maybe have like an entrepreneur in residence or something, Ooh. you know, they just, mm-hmm. they just, they just needed someone to hustle in these teams. Sure. Yeah. Like um, a, a Swiss or in this case, a, a Dutch army knife there, I say. Right. So <laughs> I started as a, I started as more like the growth hacker uh, and then kind of rolled into more just being a uh, lead coach type of role. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And let's talk more about like that lifestyle, especially you know, living in different cities, right? Because these clients are based in different parts of the world, or they have, might have, for example, Starbucks might have a China office, or another client might need some help in their uh, EMEA or Middle East Africa market. What were some of the most memorable places you traveled to? I mean, yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, uh, I don't think necessarily, by the way, that mm-hmm. uh, this type of lifestyle was is like always part of this type of jobs to be sure, honest. Although right. you know, consultant jobs do usually get uh, you know assigned in certain places for uh, you know a few months at a time. So that's kind of what it was. Mo- it was mostly in Asia um, what I was doing. So I started out in Shanghai, uh, worked on a project there, and then I went to Hong Kong for a few months uh, on another project. I was in Jakarta, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, I mean, I loved it. It was great for me. Mm-hmm. What was really great about it is that it, it's, you're not just traveling there. You know, if you would travel to a city, you're basically a tourist, right? And you just, you can only do so much. What I really loved about it is I was really living there, working there. And that's true travel to me, you know, like how can I actually see um, the real country? You know, how, how do the local people actually live? And especially with the projects that I was working on, that was our job, like, it was our job to understand deeply how, you know, you know, obviously the, the consumers there are living. So um, to give an example, you know, in Jakarta, um, part of what we had to do was do home visits. You know, we were working and this was for a food company. We're working on a breakfast product for uh, low income households. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to go and mm-hmm. see what do they currently do in the, in the low income households, you know? So, so we would, um, you know, the, they would arrange some visits, would literally go there and just kind of observe and tell mom, like, okay, just do whatever you normally would do uh, with, uh, you know, prepping your children. And, and, then, and then you get the real insights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see how busy she is. You see how she deals with preparing the food because they have no time or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's great. So I was flying around quite a lot because I would still go back to Shanghai as my home base. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was it was great to be in these different countries yeah. a few months at a time. Yeah, and that piece about really understanding how people live really strikes a chord with me, even with simple things like food. I remember there was a, a podcast or a, an article that I was reading in the past, and they were talking about how in the United States, why certain parts of middle America 
they just have really, really, really high sales of milkshakes, right? And for us, we think of a milkshake as a dessert, something you eat after dinner, something in the afternoon. But when they started talking more to the McDonald's folks, they didn't know why there were so many McDonald's, uh, excuse me, McDonald's milkshakes being sold in the morning. But it turns out a lot of these, you know, interstate you know, long haul truck drivers, they would eat it for breakfast, right? Mm. The milkshake for breakfast, because drinking a coffee or just drinking a, a soda, it, they're done in 20 minutes, right? But the milkshake, it takes a long time, right? For it to melt, mm. to use the straw, you can only get, you know, one, 1.5 sips because, you know, those milkshakes, they're real thick, right? So just so interesting how, you know, the company intended it for a dessert, right? Oh, make milkshakes in the evening, right? But in parts of the world, it ends up being a breakfast item, which is quite unexpected. And yeah. let's talk more about kind of the, the downsides, right? I mean, I've had many friends that were management consultants and on the surface, it's so cool. You get to travel, you have all these miles, you stay in cool hotels, but what are some of the right. downsides that are kind of overlooked? And I think it's always important to have the, the real talk, but what were some of like the downsides? I imagine just not being in the same neighborhood, you know, month after month means you probably miss out on a bunch of social stuff. You definitely do. Um, you know, you know, this whole thing of living out of a suitcase, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, I think sounds uh cool for people who have never really done it for a long time but i was definitely doing that and you know eventually you don't really uh you're not home right so you're always uh mm-hmm. kind of traveling around uh so that that was one thing uh luckily i was able to mostly go back for kind of important events mm-hmm. or birthdays even with friends i would just kind of like fly back um but i think one thing that is maybe not touched upon that much is how to make friends if Ooh. you're only going to be there for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, you know, some people might not really want to hang out with you that much if, mm-hmm. you, if you're just going to be there for two or three months, right? And I get it because, you know, it's an emotional investment. You know, when you like uh, make a friendship with someone, you know, every every few months you're going to leave again. So you need to like, you know, farewell, it's a bit much. And, yeah. But it's always, you know, you're making a lot of friends and, um but you also need to like say bye to them. Right. You know, I don't know when I'm going to go back to, I don't know, mm-hmm. Jakarta or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know, I have a lot of them now on Instagram and uh, it's definitely like below the line. It's definitely a plus. Sure. You, know, you, you make contacts and mm-hmm. uh, that's great, but it's definitely a emotional burden uh, as well, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And in many ways, you know, I've, I've done that for a little while, just you know, living out of a suitcase. I did a gap quarter about a year and a half ago before we met in Singapore and same feeling, right? But I imagine that's amplified where after a while, you know, because everywhere is your house or everywhere is, you know, a place to stay, you don't really have a true home. And that is a strange feeling, right? Because it, it having is. a home is very core to being a human, right? And yes, yeah. you can stay anywhere, you can eat food, but there's a certain emptiness that you start to feel right and you could ignore it right but it's always kind of there and it doesn't sit well you know when you have those existential hmm, you know work has been stressful why am i where i am and did you ever have one of those i don't know let's call it breakthroughs or one of those you know troughs in your you know during this time as like a corporate co- uh, innovation coach did you ever have like a hmm, i need to make some changes moment uh well yes but not mm-hmm. not not in that regard but yeah. A bit of context here. I quit Starbucks, my corporate nice job, to go back to do startup. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, then I got rolled into this corporate innovation project. And on paper, it sounded perfect because it was three, I was working three days a week. Yeah, 
And I thought, well, great. Then I have four days a week to work <laughs> on my own stuff. Yeah. Doesn't work like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, like if you're not like, uh, you know, fully focused on, especially doing like building a business, it's just not really going to get started. So um, the, the kind of like the breakthrough for me was, you know, I was doing this for about almost two years. And again, I learned a lot and I got to experience amazing things. But then I was like, Phil, you need to like stop mm-hmm. uh, and go back to what your true, you know, kind of like why, why am I doing this or what, you know, what drives me? Um, and that was not to, you know, build companies and products for other people, but I really wanted to do my own thing and give it a proper shot mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, building a, a, a startup and a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was supposed to, after Ho Chi Minh City, I was supposed to go to Kuala Lumpur for my next project, another innovation project, three months. And I'm sure it would have been, you know, fun uh, again. But I said, no. Um, and then uh, I got admitted to Antler. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Singapore instead. And yeah. that's why I met you. There. Yeah. Before we talk about our lovely Antler experience and that journey, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of that, that pivot, right? During that time when you're trying to figure out what you wanted to do, it's tough, right? You're not really sure where, what is your true North Star? What are, why are you doing this, right? In many businesses, they have what we call like a North Star KPI, right? We really want to increase our number of monthly active users or number right. of toothbrushes sold, you know, that's all right. fun and good, right? But it's so hard when you look at your own life, right? During that time, how did you kind of get unstuck? Were there particular mentors? Were there, you know, books that you recommended or read? Or was it simply a breakthrough, you know, whether at the bottom of a glass or after a cup of coffee? I think it, it, it I mean, it just creeps in, mm-hmm. you know, like with every project I took, I knew it was an opportunity cost of not, not spending that time working on my own. And mm-hmm. I guess eventually, um, uh, you know, I just got to a point where I said, okay, I need to do something else. However, uh, I did have at that point a certain problem why, why I thought it was hard for me to actually get started mm-hmm. was that I did not have a, um, someone around me or co-founder that I thought, hey, uh, let's do something. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I do think, of course, uh, you know, when you want to build a business or to be honest, any type of project, if you're doing it with two people, it's much easier than one because you can mm-hmm. you know you can motivate each other hold each other accountable so that was kind of like my thing that was holding me back of properly getting started again it is also an ex- kind of an excuse no, but it's, it's uh, real though i feel you mm-hmm. yeah right so uh and then and on ho chi minh i was uh catching up with someone and i was explaining this problem to him i'm like oh i want to actually get started but uh, i'm trying to find a good co-founder do you know where i can look for and he mentioned about antler so that was kind of like moment like, oh, that's interesting. Never heard of it. And he mm-hmm. said, well, you know, that's exactly what they're trying to do for people that want to get started, but have issues finding a co-founder. Yeah. So I literally went home that evening, applied, did my interviews, got in, said bye-bye to my golden handcuff corporate uh-huh, innovation job uh-huh. and went back to, uh, you know, the grind, yeah. startup grind. Yeah. And the next chapter, which we'll talk about. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's funny, like the whole time we were talking about saying goodbye, it just reminds me of that song, you know, that Sam Smith song. You get way too good at goodbyes, man. You're just like, hey, right. you know, goodbye, Vietnam. Goodbye, you know, Singapore. Yeah. But yeah. And uh, I, in a funny way, now that I reflect back even on this podcast where I was, wor- the last time I did an episode was like in 2019, late 2019, uh, right before the antler journey started. And I was so excited. And I think 
it's incredible just to reflect on that, you know, the reasons why, you know, we joined and how we met through that program. And I'll just do, say a few words about the program where it's super interesting. It's a very unique structure where you go in with no idea, no co-founder, right? Maybe a pitch deck, right? If you had some random ideas since you were a kid and you used to realize that that's not a good business idea, right? But right. you go with just a lot of hunger, Right. And we're all what we call that entrepreneurs. You know, we're all from, you know, career backgrounds and whether in tech or in business. And we go in with this idea of a de-risk startup adventure where they help you find a co-founder. They give you a, a stipend and you have, what is it, 12 weeks, 10 weeks to basically find a co-founder, start a business and 12, go, yeah. right? 12 weeks. And it's like, just go. Right. And we don't have to spend too much time talking about the antler experience, but like, I want to hear about like, just, just to, to, to kind of echo your experience, like, what were your overall thoughts? We don't have to go into detail with all the, you know, the milestones, sure. but you know, kind of what was your experience through it? To be honest, my, my experience was good. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, we did not make it to the second phase, mm-hmm. but I think it's, if you, uh, if you were in a situation as, as I was, uh, meaning, um, you know, it's something you've been thinking about doing, but you just need a bit of help, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, everyone needs a bit of help. I think it's a great way to get started. Yeah. And, um, uh, I did not necessarily learn a lot about the, you know, how to build product innovation marketing part because, you know, my background is from that. But what yeah. I did learn a lot about is to understand the VC, the VC game. Yeah. Um, the venture capital game. That, yeah. The venture capital game. That was something that was definitely missing in my knowledge. That helped a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. By joining Antler, they, you know, as you know, they explain a lot about how that works, how to, you know, position your startup to be attractive for mm-hmm. venture capital so yeah definitely that has been immensely valuable to me and of course i eventually found my co-founder so mm-hmm. uh you know that was the main thing so i did found my uh co-founder so yeah those were kind of like two uh really uh, valuable things and the third thing definitely um you're right you know everyone comes together and everyone uh, you know these are all smart people and they're all hungry and have a drive and as you know uh, you know, still keep in touch with quite a lot of these people. Um, so, you know, you have kind of like a network to work with. Uh, uh-huh. So yeah, my, my uh, you know, that's been a positive experience for me, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And for myself, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. So since I was a child, all your your icons, they're not, you know, the, the hip hop artist or the, the pro athlete or even like the music singer, right? It's no, no, it's the startup founders, right? And that's always been granted in, ingrained in my mind that that's kind of the path that I would love to pursue. And that's mm. what kind of brought me and uh, that's how we met is through that Antler program. And I think for myself, I maybe drank too much of the Kool-Aid growing up where I always thought that being a startup founder is the end all be all. This is perfect, right? Like, yeah, you don't have a boss anymore. But what are some of like the, the rude awakening moments, right? I and mean, we can also talk about, you know, the, the great things about being a startup founder, but what are some of the things you discovered about the journey of being a startup founder, or maybe even learned about yourself over the past year now that you've been building your own startup venture? I mean, to be honest, the, the, the short answer is everything they say is kind of true, Okay, you know? Um, and what I mean with that is, you know, you need perseverance and, it, you know, you have high highs and low lows and all that is true. You know, it's like how I compared it is, uh, you know, when you when you just break up and you're like heartbroken <laughs> and you listen to yeah. an Adele song and mm-hmm. suddenly everything makes sense. Yeah. You know, like yeah. before that, you just listen to the song like, oh, nice song. 
Yeah, then hello, it's me. Okay. Listen to the song and like exactly, and hello, then every, uh, everything, all the lyrics yeah. make sense. <laughs> That's exactly kind of what it is, you know. Yeah, I watch yeah. back a lot of the YC startup uh, mm-hmm. videos and all that, and so like, oh my god, yeah. Now yeah. I feel it, you know, mm-hmm. not just rationally kind of understand. Yeah. But now I completely understand what they mean, and um, you know, definitely the whole perseverance thing. You know, yeah. that's probably key. That's mm-hmm. really key, and that's why it is so important to to work on something where you you have a meaningful why for yourself mm-hmm. on why you're working on what you're working, um, what you're working on, and uh, because you're gonna go through so much many moments of, oh, what am I doing? You know, like is this really gonna work? Kind of like emotional roller coaster of in the morning you do something great and you think I'm a genius, <laughs> and literally after lunch you get an email from someone or whatever and, and then like oh my god this is not going anywhere yeah and you need to be able to deal with that mm. you know emotionally but also physically uh, of course you need to put in a lot of hours probably the the definitely the one of the key things uh perseverance the other thing is that a lot of stuff uh that i think is uh, not talked about too much in startup education mm-hmm. let's say you know they, they talk a lot about finding your market and product market fit and how you test your ideas and et cetera. But it don't talk that much about, for example, how to deal with, I don't know, co-founder conflict, employee conflict, how to deal with small teams. And Mm -hmm. you're as a founder, you're like, you know, this this anxiety inside of you because you don't know if it's going to work, but you need to like motivate your small team every single day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Like a lot of these kind of, I guess, in a way, soft skills or management or something that I think are even especially hard in a startup mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you don't have the big brand company that you're working for where a lot of the flaws can be covered, right? Nothing yeah. is being covered. Startup yeah, is just, oh, yeah. this is it. This is it, you know? You, you know, what, what you see is what you're going to get. So, yeah, I, I feel like they don't talk enough about those things or, you know, you have a lot of anxiety because you need to like deal with your customers and you, your, 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 your employees and your potential investors and all that. And, how do you deal with it as a founder? Yeah, I wish they would talk a little bit more about those things and not how to find product market fit. And right, right. And all that. Yeah, there's certainly like almost like a massive survivorship bias. So what we mean by that, it's all the people that stand up in front of, you know, workshops telling you about product market fit, how to get yeah, validation, right. how to pitch. They're mainly talking about, you know, startups that either they founded as solo founders or there were no major co-founder issues, or it's just something you don't talk about openly. Right. And there's a measure of, you know, legality, you know, not getting sued for defamation and such. But at the same time, too, yeah, like I tell my friends or speak openly about, hey, you know, I, my co-founder and I, we just didn't work well together. And mm-hmm. after what's six months of, you know, actually working on the startup, I made the decision, hey, this is not a good fit. You're a smart human being, but I just think we have different working styles. And I think there's... But there's a book that I read recently. It's called Effortless, the same guy that wrote Essentialism by Greg McCone. And part of it is that we worship this idea of like, if you don't bleed, if you don't cry, if you don't sweat for it, it's not worth it, right? But at certain points mm-hmm. of time, I think making the strategic decision to either you know have to fire someone or to walk away, those are not talked about either, right? Where in a way, it's I knew that it's easier. It was easier to technically continue, right? Oh, I'll just leave it as is when. In reality, there's a lot of problems. And the harder decision sometimes is to say, hey, swallow your pride and to walk away, which is, as you know, as you were you know, one of my close friends who helped mediate and coach me through that decision, which I still really appreciate. I, I agree. I think 
startups are often portrayed as this, you know, you're a genius and you have some amazing code and, you know, you ship it and they come. And certainly there are anomalies, right? These outlier success stories. But at the same time, you know, it is a very human journey. Because at the end of the day, what is a company? A collection of people. And if you can't solve the people problems, right, then the company, no matter how brilliant, can never really stay afloat. But I'm amazed to hear, you know, I know we caught up um, prior to this this um, podcast recording and hearing how, you know, there's, you know, you and your co-founder remain steady state. And I'm just curious too, for yourself, like what were the biggest surprises along this journey, right? Was it that the, the challenge of the people's part? Was it, dang, now I have to watch my budget or what are some of the, the you know, the more uh, surprising things about your journey? It's, it's, it's harder than I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's like it's almost like you thought the success or the the, the big funding or the big deal would come faster, right? Like, well, it, oh maybe, yeah, after yeah. one month, the first one, yeah, but after and, ten, it's like. Let me, yeah, let me share some kind of like more like personal context. Look, yeah, please um, do, please do. I, like in in my life so far, you know, everything has been always kind of. Like up and acceleration mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. like like that right I, yeah. I took a nice job here and then i got this other thing and well up, 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 up and i was always able to do things pretty well according to my standards pretty well uh with uh okay effort mm-hmm. and to be honest now i'm doing this i think that it's kind of like the first time in my life where i think i just might not be able to do this mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like just intellectually mentally perseverance wise then I have never felt this in my life before, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it, it might be, you know, there's days where I say, I might just not be good enough to pull this off, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I remind myself that most, I think, again, perseverance is probably the, the key thing here uh, and not uh, whether you're smart enough, you know, mm-hmm. I think. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at that in grinding yeah. Yeah. and persevere. So keep going. And keep mm-hmm. going, and then, um, but that's definitely, uh, yeah, one thing that, yeah, you, how to say, uh, it's very self-confronting. Is that, is that, is that you know, mm-hmm. what I mean, like I, you learn about yourself. You, Certainly, you, learn, limits. you mm-hmm. learn some limits about yourself. Having said that, um, I am no regrets. I love what I'm doing mm-hmm. uh, still every day. I love the journey that I'm on. I'm excited about it. I just can't wait to come to a moment where I feel like, oh, this grind paid off. Mm-hmm. I'm not there yet. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. The grind. Mm-hmm. I know, and honestly, I'm not sure if that feeling will ever come until you maybe like ring the bell at NASDAQ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's just the start of some other new problems, right? <laughs> yeah, all your financials are exposed, scandals, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, the other thing I was also kind of realized is, okay, this might just be the normal state that you're in now and you just need to learn to live with it and how to properly deal with a lot of the, this kind of emotional roller coaster that you're in yeah definitely and then the other thing is also how to keep yourself mentally healthy mm-hmm. you know just not just physically healthy but you know you are as a founder especially as a very committed and dedicated founder it's almost like a goldfish that will eat himself to death mm. you know like if you just keep him keep giving this goldfish food it will just keep eating it even if it's like you should stop eating. It's with a founder too. Like, I'll just keep working. I'll just keep thinking about it. You know, yeah. keep thinking about what is what else can I do? You know, mm-hmm. I have one hour left. I have 30 minutes left. Can I send a few more emails out? What can I do? What can I do better? What can I do more? What are you gonna like it's to to an extent that it's probably not healthy. I need to now I kind of like design a regimen where I have to take 
time off. Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to work on these and these hours or these days, whatever it is. I think dedication is very important, but you know, startup is not life. There are mm-hmm. other things in life. So uh, true. And uh, you need to kind of uh, realize that too. And um, I guess I'm getting better at it. You know, I guess in the beginning and in a sense, I'm also still a first time founder. You just dive right in, mm-hmm. you know, and then, um, but I guess when you pivot, you become like a second time founder, 1.5 founder. True, true. And then, um, so, I, you know, I'm learning that it is a marathon, not a sprint. So mm-hmm. yeah, trying to adjust for the long term. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And really appreciate all the insights and the personal sharing. I know it's, it's so hard sometimes to find people that are willing to open the kimono as, as we once had a mentor say, right. Where sometimes it's, Oh yeah. Like I'm so great at this. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, it's always, Oh, I'm raising that and I'm doing great. But in reality, it's like, I think people, I love how vulnerable that we can be right. Talking about the tough times, right. Where, you know, the mental health challenges, the personal growth and realizing that there's always room. Uh, can I say something? Sorry. Oh, look, please I do. Yeah. This, this is like, uh, like that thing, what you just mentioned, oh, mm-hmm. oh look at other people raising so many. Like mm-hmm. before I would read articles about fundraising yep. or doing startups and they would say, they would say that, yep. you know, don't pay too, too much, don't need tech crunch too much. It's really yep. bad for you, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a non-founder, you'd be like, no, I, I won't be bothered. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a founder. And every time I read someone in the same space, they read some seed funding and they're like, what? How? They don't even have they're a product like, yet. Their website sucks, right? Right. And like, and, and I have so much trouble getting some additional uh-huh. traction or raising yeah, money. Yeah. And you read another article and then you have this, in our space, there's this company called Hopin and mm-hmm. it's like a virtual events yeah. company who became a unicorn, unicorn, within, unicorn within one year. I know, I know. Within one yeah. year. Yeah. And like, what? You know? Like, mm-hmm. And all that, you try to create kind of like a mental shield for yourself to not be affected, but it does. A little bit, Certainly. You know, a yeah. little bit by a little bit by a little bit mm-hmm. and but you know keep your chain up high and uh, just grind on and persevere and you know just say the one day you'll, you'll be there but it's the reason why i'm sharing very openly is because every time i hear someone else share very openly about their struggles mm-hmm. it comforts me you yeah. know yeah um, I, had a, I have a good friend in vietnam he's at this point you can say he's a successful entrepreneur and he's going to just raised series a for his company i think and uh, he did a podcast where he was sharing that in the in the early days, he was thinking about quitting and he was actually already looking for other jobs, but he yeah. didn't eventually. Mm-hmm. And just by hearing him say that, just that small thing made me like, oh, I'm not okay. alone, so right? it's not crazy <laughs> that I like, think that too sometimes, you know, and eventually he stuck with it and he moved on and now they are doing great, you know, mm-hmm. so I just keep telling myself that same thing. Uh, happy to share some of the stuff that you don't see on our LinkedIn. Oh yeah. Yeah. And in a funny way, now that you bring that up, it's, I remember when like, if TechCrunch is the Instagram where, you know, you have beauty standards. Oh, man. And how is terrible. Right? It's like, Oh, why? And like, terrible. yeah. And then I think with LinkedIn, I remember when I was still doing my startup, it was like, Oh man, I was on the way out. You know, you feel like when you're looking at jobs on LinkedIn, it's almost like, Ooh, health benefits. Ooh, salary, right? Like those things that you take for oh, granted yeah. when you're working, but as a startup founder, you're like, honestly having, you know, fixed income sounds pretty good, but no, that's I amazing. That for relaxation yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Just to like, uh, when I'm very anxious about, uh, you know, if mm-hmm. like, am I doing the right thing with my life? I would just go to LinkedIn and I see all these jobs that I could potentially probably get. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, like, oh, this, oh, like, okay. 
calms me down, you know, calms <laughs> me down that I could also do that and mm -hmm. I wouldn't end up on the street somewhere. No, that's a really amazing place to, you know, wrap up our conversation. And we covered a lot of ground, you know, you're, you're growing up in Europe and then your own journey through, you know, the corporate innovation side and your own startup journey. And just as a last you know, way to wrap up, like what's been some advice that you wish you had earlier on in your life or what are some mindsets, books, or pieces of wisdom that you know, has have helped you that you wish you had earlier in your life? Yeah, I mean, the key thing is always like, um, kind of like get started before you're ready. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of key in a lot of things because most people would try to get ready and then start. But, mm -hmm. you know, the problem with that is you're never really ready. Right. Um, so that's kind of like a high level startup motivational quote type mm -hmm. of uh, uh, thing that I do think is very true. Get started before you think you're ready. Mm -hmm. The other more maybe practical advice is definitely try to find a mentor who has done what you have, what you have mm -hmm. done. Yeah. Or try to surround you with people that have been doing things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this quote of what is it? You're, you're the average of, you know, the seven people you hang out with the most or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very true. So I kind of like try to actively make that decision mm -hmm. in kind of like late 20s. I think it was like when I was still working at Starbucks and I had yep. this conversation with a friend like, ah, I thought I'm going to change my life. And I'm going to now kind of actively pick the people that I'm going to spend my time with. Yeah, that, that has a, makes a huge difference. You know, that's the difference between, I don't know, sharing a funny meme versus sharing another, I don't know, some, some articles some whatever it is that can, you know, maybe enrich you a bit more than just having about some silly memes all day. Mm -hmm. So definitely that. So yeah, surround yourself with, yeah, obviously good people or find yourself a mentor. Because there's this other thing Mm -hmm. um, that I also really believe in is that this is a quote from Les, his name is Les Brown. He says, uh, there are winners and there are losers and there are people who haven't been taught how to win yet. Mm. You know, and I think that's very true. You know, a lot of people have potential, just no one has really told them practically how to do it, you know, how to get started. That's why I, I like to talk real talk as in mm -hmm. give me the practical steps. And right when someone asks me for advice, I like to give literal practical steps mm -hmm. that you can do today. That's my, my two cents on that. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's amazing. And I really appreciate all those insights too. I know we could go on for hours and hours about you know our startup journeys, our career stories, the adventures we've been on. But and this is a really great place for us to stop. I know we'll have potentially more episodes in the future as your startup continues to grow. And Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on uh, this episode and looking forward to uh, our continued adventures. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Derek. Yeah, of course, dude. See ya. See ya. Thanks again for tuning in to the Paper Lantern Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Wong, and I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. We are just getting started with producing episodes and could use your input to help us get better. If you have any feedback for us or suggestions on who you'd like to see as a guest, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have a friend or colleague that you think might enjoy this episode, please share our podcast with them and tell them to visit our website, thepaperlantern.blog. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Cheers.